If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John 13? John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38 will be our text today. Uh, and just so you're aware, uh, you probably have assumed this, but we will continue in our study in John's gospel um, through the Advent season. Sometimes we pause and do something particular for Advent, and sometimes we continue what we're in. And I think that this upper room discourse will serve us well uh, in the Advent season. And so we will uh, next Sunday continue into chapter 14, Lord willing. But our passage today, again, is John 13, verses 31 to 38. And let's just jump right into it. Let me read these first two verses. John 13, verses 31 to 32 says this. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We've said that the first half of John's gospel is often referred to as the book of signs. And if that's true, this second half, beginning in chapter 13, could be called the book of glory. Jesus has been speaking about his hour of glorification throughout his ministry. And in these final days, he's made it clear that that hour of glorification is now. As verse 30 made clear, the night has come. The hour of darkness is here, but the night will not overshadow Jesus, the light of the world, but instead, the night will allow his glory to shine even brighter than it ever has. There's no doubt that the Son has been glorified in John's gospel through his signs and his wonders and his teaching, and all the while he has sought to show that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, such that his glory is God's glory, but the work of salvation seen in the cross is going to magnify and glorify the Father and the Son in a way that no sign or statement ever could. Together they will be glorified. It reminds me in some ways of, of Lazarus and how Jesus delayed on purpose. Why? Because there was a greater sign that needed to happen that showed greater glory and greater power and even here, as we look towards the cross and the, the resurrection and the ascension, there's a greater glory that is coming. And together, the Father and the Son will be glorified. And it says here, it will happen at once, verse 32, meaning it's going to happen soon. Or possibly, it will happen at the same time, meaning at the same time as the crucifixion and the resurrection and the, the ascension, simultaneously, they will all bring glory to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. By the Father's plan, the Son will be lifted up and he will draw all men to himself, calling us all to believe in Jesus and find life in him. But, but before this moment of glorification, public glorification, that, the, that the, the departure of Judas has set in motion. Before that, Jesus is going to reveal his heart to his disciples here in the upper room. There's definitely a shift of focus in, at the beginning of, of verse 1 of chapter 13, but we could also say in some ways that verse 31 here of chapter 13 marks the beginning of the upper room discourse. That's not to say that, that what has already happened in verses 1 through 30 is unconnected. The, the washing of the disciples' feet sets the tone for everything that Jesus is going to say, especially as it relates to the kind of love that they are to have 
for one another. And the exit of Judas, in a sense, affirms that those who are present are truly Jesus's chosen sheep and that these words are uniquely for them. They're uniquely for those who have believed in Jesus as Messiah and God. Judas's exit also begins a countdown of sorts. The, the clock is ticking until Jesus's arrest and his crucifixion which means that his, the time that Jesus has with his disciples is, is limited, and he wants to be very focused in what he communicates to them. As we look at this whole teaching, chapters 13 through 17, it seems to split in half uh, versus between chapters 14 and, and 15. Bruce Milne titles these two parts of the words of Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse, uh, saying that they're summarized with, with some of Jesus's words. Uh, the first half, is focused on this idea of let not your hearts be troubled. Chapter 13, verse 31 through the end of chapter 14 focuses on this idea that he's leaving and he says to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And then the second half focuses a little bit more on this idea of so send I you, that Jesus is sending his disciples. Along those lines, we might notice that in the first half, Jesus brings some clarity and some comfort about the fact that he's leaving, and in the second half, he makes it clear that he's sending his disciples to continue the work that he started. That said, as we try to outline the upper room discourse, I think it's good to remember that it's a little bit more of a tapestry. There's a lot of threads that are woven in and out of each other from the beginning and the end. So we can look for an outline, but we should also look for threads and, and themes that, that go through it. And one of these themes, if not the key theme, is love. It's love. Here at the very beginning of the discourse, Jesus calls us to love one another as evidence that he has been sent. And then at the end, in chapter 17, he calls us to a unifying love so that the world will know that we belong to Jesus. This entire discourse from the end of chapter 13 until the end of chapter 17 is bookended by this new commandment to love. This love is, is tied up with the leaving of Jesus and the sending of we who are his as, in, as his followers, uh, we who are his followers into the world. In his absence, we are to love one another. And as we love one another, we show the world what Jesus has done and and, and what the gospel means. So he sends us out, and, it, and he sends us out, it's on, a, it's on a mission to love one another in such a way that glorifies God. Let's summarize our big idea of this passage like this. Reveal God's glory. I'm sorry, reveal God's salvation. Reveal God's salvation by loving one another. Reveal God's salvation by loving one another. As you think about the mission of the church, what the church is supposed to do, there are many good and helpful discussions that we should have about who we are and what we are to do. But at the end of the day, passages like this one remind us that we are disciples. We are followers of Jesus who reveal who he is and what he has done by loving one another. And while that doesn't sound very flashy, fundamentally, it's the greatest thing that we can do is to love one another in such a powerful way that the world looks at us and can only conclude that God himself has come to earth and changed us. 
Loving each other reveals God's salvation. And therefore, the command is, reveal God's salvation. How? By loving one another. Let's read the rest of this passage in John 13. Remember, again, that Judas has just left the room to betray Jesus into the hand of the Pharisees, which is going to happen in a few hours. Let's begin. Uh, We'll read verses 31 and 32 again. John 13, God's word says, When he had gone out, Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. We've already tried to summarize verses 31 and 32, so let's begin by looking at verse 33 and notice what we'll call the current reality. The current reality. Now, this current reality for us was a coming reality for the disciples. And the reality is the fact that Jesus was not going to be physically present with them in bodily form. Here he knows that his glorification will also mean his leaving them and that his leaving them is going to cause them significant heartache and difficulty. As he addresses this topic, he calls them little children. It's the only place in all four Gospels that Jesus ever uses this title to address the disciples, little children. The only other place that this phrase is found is one instance in the book of Galatians and then seven times you probably know where, in John's epistle, 1 John. He loves to call his, his hearers, his, the people he's writing to, little children. Uh, for this reason, it's wise to study 1 John in conjunction with these verses. In fact, I listened to a sermon this week by John Piper, and he convincingly argues that the epistle of 1 John is, in, is largely a commentary on John 13, 34, and 35, explaining what this command meant. It's this command impacted John so much that he took up this title, Little Children, to refer to those that he was writing to and spoke so much about what it means to love one another in that epistle. So I commend to you First John as you're reading for this week. There's a tenderness in Jesus' calling his followers little children, isn't there? It communicates his love, but it also communicates his awareness of of their weakness and of of their fear. The picture that Jesus describes is of the disciples looking for him, but but not finding him. As I thought about that, it, it it reminded me of when Andrea sometimes leaves the house and my children, especially the two youngest, James and Anne, they start to look for her. And they call out her, her name, Mom, where are you? And I say, you know what, she's, she's not here. And sometimes they're okay with that. Sometimes 
rarely. Uh, and other times they're, they're just upset by the fact that she's gone or they wonder why they couldn't have gone with her. And usually when she leaves, she says, where I'm going, you cannot come. No, she doesn't say it like that, but that, that kind of is the vibe, isn't it? Sometimes you say, I'm, I'm leaving and no, you can't come with me, you know. There's this picture of, of little children and this relationship that's going on here. And the little children in this passage are the disciples. They, they would have had a similar response to the departure of their friend and their, their master, Jesus. He was the, the one that had been with them for so many years, and he made sense of everything. He, he just made everything so much, well, sometimes he confused them, didn't he? But often he, he showed them how to live. They, he was a constant source of wisdom and, and peace and love and, and power and security, just like a father or a mother is to a little child. But now he's going away. He's leaving. And he says to them, I'm leaving and you guys can't come with me. You can't follow me. The celebration of Christmas that is upon us reminds us that God became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what the church celebrates on Christmas Day and then on the 11 days following. But the celebration of Christmas is preceded by the season of Advent, which, which has traditionally focused on themes of expectation and preparation. It's a season that reminds us that there was a time when Jesus had not come into the world, and there is a time right now where Jesus is not with us as his disciples. And he's calling us now to, to prepare for and to expect his return in the second coming. But in many ways, Jesus is telling us here how we are to live in this waiting time, in this time when he is not physically here, where we're longing to be with him and for him to be with us, where we're looking forward to the future kingdom while also trying to see that kingdom in and among us. He's telling us how we live in his absence while we await his return. Jesus is going to give so many instructions about how we live in this current reality of his physical absence, including the revelation of the arrival of the, the Holy Spirit, that he is not with us, but he is with us. But he begins here by, by shaping our currently current reality around the call to love. So we see the current reality in verse 33, but let's look at the call to love in verses 34 and 35. The call to love, let's, let's talk about it in three ways. First, we'll talk about the reframing of love. The reframing of love. I think what should initially strike us about these words of Jesus is that he says this command to love one another is new. But of course, it isn't new. At least not in the sense that it had never been stated before. In the Old Testament, Law, the law of Moses in Leviticus 19.18, we're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Just before this moment, Jesus summed up, sometime, not just before, but Jesus before this moment has summed up the law with those twin commands that we saw reflected in, in Romans 13, the commands to love God and to love our neighbor. So the command to love is not new. The newness is not, is not in the sense that this is the first time it's ever been stated, but rather we could say that the newness has to do with the degree of this love or maybe the, the standard of this love, how we are to measure this love. So Jesus does not say to love one another as we would love ourselves. What does he say? He says to love one another as he 
has loved us. He reframes love, not around us, but around him. The context turns our eyes to the washing of the disciples' feet, doesn't it? You're going to love me as I have loved you. And he just did love them. We see there that Jesus in that moment was loving his own to the end. He was loving them to the, the fullest extent. It's, it's therefore humble and self-sacrificing love that he is referring to. We saw in that passage that uh, about this love that there's no excuses that we can make regarding who we are to love. There's no acts of love that we are exempt from. There's no seeking of glory for ourselves in this love. But there's also no greater joy than is found in following Jesus down this path of humble, self-sacrificing love. And yet remember, the washing of the disciples' feet is an enacted parable, right? It points to the greater act of service and therefore to the greater example of love, which is Jesus laying down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love that he is calling us to when he says to love one another as I have loved you. A love that is willing and ready to die. Now there are times when that could actually mean physical death. But we should also remember that love shows up when we die to our self-interests. When we sacrifice our time or our money or our energy or our personal desires or so many other things to serve and to love others. This reframing of love around the, the love of Jesus seen in the cross means that we will always have room to grow in love. The standard of love is so high and, and so pure that we will always see ways in which we can learn to love others as Jesus has loved us. But who exactly are we to love? Who are the, the one another's that Jesus is referring to? Let's move then from the reframing of love to the recipients of this love. The recipients of this love. Who receives, who's on the receiving end of this love? Now, obviously, Jesus is giving this command to his disciples, to those that are truly his. The, the fact that he does not give this specific command to them until after Judas leaves would seem to make it clear that Jesus is speaking of a special kind of love that is expressed between Christians, between those who have been redeemed by Jesus. Now, having said that, we should not forget that, that Jesus washed Judas's feet before he sent him out. He loved Judas to the fullest extent as well. And Jesus calls us to love our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we find that anyone who is in need is our neighbor. God is said to have loved the world through the sending of Jesus, and Jesus is going to send the disciples into the world to love it and to share the message of the gospel. So loving our brothers and sisters in Christ does not happen to the exclusion of loving even our enemies. Don Carson says of this dichotomy between love for the world and love for our fellow Christians, he says this, it is not so much that Christians are to love the world less as they are to love one another more. I'll say that again and read a little bit further. It's not so much that Christians are to love the world less as they are to love one another more. Better put, their love for each other ought to be a reflection of their new status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and the Son and imitating the love that has been shown them. Their love for the world is the love of compassion, forbearance, evangelism, 
empathy. We might consider the fact that there's a, a difference in relationship between us and the world and between us and our fellow Christians. We are related to the world, as are all human beings. We're all fallen and we're all in need of grace. We all have the same father, don't we? Adam. Adam is our father. And while we, we share that same father with our fellow Christians, we also share the fact that God is our father. Jesus is our brother. So while we are in the family of man, more importantly, if we're in Christ, we're in the family of God. As we speak about family, we start to see why Jesus would call us in particular to love one another as fellow Christians. This past week, many of us have traveled to be with family or spent time with our, our blood relatives. Why? Well, because there's a, a bond between us because of a, a shared heritage. But there's also a, a blood bond for we who are in Christ. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. Now, Jesus doesn't call us to forsake our family in the, the way that a cult would. Uh, that's a good sign of a cult when they tell you to cut off all your family relationships. But Jesus does say that these relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ are deeper even than our blood relatives. He does want us to see that it's, it's those who are of the household of faith, as Paul calls it, that we're to love in a deep and significant and unique way. There's a tension there, I think. Obviously, Jesus is speaking of us loving one another in sacrificial and humble ways as he holds out the cross before us. But, but as we think about this picture of a family, could it also be that he's calling us to love one another in simple, familial ways? Even as, as he's sitting at this familial Passover meal with his disciples, Maybe he's calling us to ways of loving one another that, that include something like that, include just sharing a meal together, spending time playing some games together, spending unhurried time together, praying with one another, watching each other's kids, uh, making our kids watch themselves so we can go out, uh, a whole host of other things that, that families and, and friends do. As I think about that, I realize that, you know, in our church when we have Christmas parties or fall hikes or Sunday meals. Those things are simple, but you know what they are? It's what families do. You hang out. You spend time with each other because you love one another, and we are a family in Christ. These are expressions, simple as they may be, they're expressions of our love for one another. And isn't family at the heart of what we're all looking for? Isn't there in us all a desire for community for a place that we can know that we're truly welcomed, that we're truly accepted, that we're truly loved by others. Often these kinds of places will form around some kind of a shared hobby or a, a passion. There's, there's communities of fans of a particular sports team, or there's communities for writers or artists or teachers. There's communities of immigrants within, within cities. Maybe you remember the TV show Cheers, which was a community that was centered around a bar. <laughs> but the song said something profound, the theme song to that show, do you remember? Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. I think that gets at something that's in our hearts. We just wanna be accepted. We wanna walk into a place where people know us and love us. So why are Christians together? Well, it's not because we love the same bar or the same baseball team. 
That's not what unites us. It's the, the love of Jesus that draws us together. And because of that, and because, because Jesus has called people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and socioeconomic level, and because of that, we're a pretty diverse family. We're quite the unique family. We're the kind of family that would only be together if we have Christ in common. There's no other reason that we would all hang out, especially as we get wider into the church at, at large. I think the natural God-giving longing that we have for community that then coupled with the uniqueness and the diversity of those who make up the Christian community, those who have Christ in common, it leads us to a third thought on this call to love, and that's the effect of this love. The effect of this love. We're moving from the recipients of this love to the effect of this love. What is the effect of Christians loving one another as Christ has loved us? When Jesus was, was on earth, how did people know who were his disciples? How did people know that they were followers of Jesus? Well, if disciple means follower, then it's pretty easy, right? The disciples of Jesus were the people that were following him around. They were with him. They were the ones who literally walked behind him. Of course, there's more to following someone, to being a disciple of someone than just stepping in their footprints. And the disciples were also seeking to do what, what Jesus said. But there is a sense in which the departure of Jesus meant that it would no longer be so simple to see who followed Jesus. So how, is, is, how, how will people identify the followers of Jesus if he's no longer there? What's the mark that will set them apart? Some religions have a specific way of dressing. Some religions have a specific way of cutting your hair that shows you're a part of that Maybe we imagine that people will know we are Christians by our t-shirts or by our bumper stickers. But I think the hymn writer was right when he said they'll know we are Christians how? By our love. That's how they'll know we are Christians. In his book, The Mark of a Christian, by France, in the, his book, The Mark of a Christian, Francis Schaeffer meditates on John 13, 34 to 35, as well as John 17. It's a little book. It was actually an essay in a larger book that was so powerful that they printed it as its own thing. I don't even know if the larger book is still in print, but you can still find the mark of a Christian, a little meditation on, on what this means to love one another. I commend it to you. But his main idea is that the distinguishing mark of Christians in the world is the love that we have for one another. That is the mark of of a Christian. And drawing from chapter 17, he goes as far as to say that if we don't have love for one another, then Jesus says the world has every right to deny that Jesus ever came into the world. The mark of a Christian is love, love for one another. This love has such a strong effect because of what we've talked about, namely that it's patterned after Jesus' sacrificial love, but also because it's for our fellow Christians. I think when we first hear that, we say, um, loving one another, that sounds exclusive. That sounds like you're being divisive. But as I've meditated on this, I think that we begin to see that this love for one another is not exclusive, like we're in some sort of special club, but actually it forces our love to be more extensive. If I love my, my blood relatives or I love those who I share common interests with, that's 
easy because I often it's because I like these people because they have I have something in common with them but if I love the family of God suddenly I'm being called to love people who aren't like me I'm being called to love people who sometimes I naturally just and I don't get along with very well but when we love those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ despite their differences from us and when we do that so much so that we do it in a sacrificial way that's radical. That starts to reveal the kind of love that Jesus has had and, and has for us. We start to reveal the gospel as we love one another within the church community, especially in the diversity that we find. We looked a little bit at Peter's response as in comparison to Judas last week, and so we'll just touch on Peter a little bit more here. But as we look at this, we see that Peter was focused on this idea that Jesus was leaving. Uh, he latched onto that, and he didn't like it. He wanted to stop Jesus from leaving. And he went so far as to say, listen, Jesus, you're talking about you dying for us. I'm going to die for you, Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. That's pretty radical, isn't it? He tells Jesus, no, you're not going to lay down your life for me. I will lay down my life for you. I think Peter reveals, uh, reminds us that we often feel the impulse to, to do something radical and big in, in service to Christ. Peter always wanted to do something. But we have to remember that our strength and our example comes from, from Christ and our love finds its roots not, not in us. It doesn't find its root, roots in our strength, but in Jesus and him laying down his life for us. The call to love one another is not one that we can naturally fulfill on our own. We can't understand or walk in love through our own strength, but only through seeing and resting in and modeling the love of Jesus. There's something interesting here with the word afterward. You remember the last time that Peter interrupted Jesus, it was because Jesus was washing his feet. And he says in verse 7 of chapter 13, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Did you see that word again in verse 36? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow when? Afterward. After what? Well, after the cross. And so we see that, to, that we live after the cross. We, we, we live in a way that the, sh that the cross shapes us. In particular, it shapes how and who we love. And it reminds us that the way to show the world that we follow Christ and that he has come into the world to save sinners is by loving one another. Such love will sometimes be extravagant, but sometimes it will be simple. It will be a cup of cold water to the thirsty. It will be a hand to hold or a shoulder to cry on or a, a hug. It'll be an invitation to dinner or to, to coffee. It'll look like a family's love, a consistent love through good times and bad, but a love that's centered on Christ. Peter did understand this, didn't he? Eventually, afterward, he did. And he followed Jesus in the way of love that led him even to death. But I wonder if Peter maybe also points us to one of the great marks of self-sacrificing love seen uh, in Christ and that should be reflected in the church. 
And that facet of love, I think, is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a unique piece of Christian love, isn't it? Here, Jesus is predicting the greatest failure of Peter's life. But he also points him to the place of forgiveness for all of our failures. Jesus' death marks us as people who have been loved and who have been lovingly forgiven. And our forgiveness was not free. It was purchased by Christ through his death. So we know forgiveness now as we repent and trust in him. But we also extend forgiveness out of a a self-sacrificing love. We show that, that Peter and we can be forgiven. Think about how much that kind of love is desperately lacking in our world. Our world only knows how to cancel people and to cut them off and to accuse them. It doesn't know how to forgive. What would a community look like where followers of Christ could love each other in radical ways and one of those radical ways being that we forgive one another. That when someone fails and falls and someone even walks away, that we bring them back in. What if we as followers of Christ could love others with radical forgiveness? Well, I think we would reveal God's salvation. We would show in some sense what the gospel is. It seems like a simple command, doesn't it? to love one another, but it's how Jesus has called us, not, not simply to, to uh, it, it's how Jesus has called us to, to change the world, it's how Jesus has called us to reveal him and his salvation in this world. So may he help us to grow in love for one another. Let's take a moment of silence and we'll allow God's spirit to continue to apply his word to our hearts, and then I will pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Would you teach us what love looks like? Would you shape us by the cross so that we would love one another as you have loved us in sacrificial ways, in ways that lead to forgiveness, in ways that glorify you and show the beauty of the gospel, not only to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to a world that desperately needs to know what true love is, a love that can bring forgiveness, a love that lays down its rights for the good of others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.